What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Pop culture in 1995 was really something else. Across mediums, everybody was at the top of their game. And if they weren't, they were in the middle of something extra. Every decade has a point within it that defines and pivots the culture. And 1995 was one of those years for the 90s. In 95, Michael Jordan unretired. Amazon sold its first book online. The OJ trial was everywhere. And music. Everybody was doing just just great. There was one music festival here in Chicago that had a lineup that was Bush, Collective Soul, Duran Duran, Faith No More, KMFDM, Sheryl Crow, Sponge, and the Stone Roses. And then a month later, another festival in the Fuji's home state of New Jersey, had Blackstreet, Brandy, Method Man, Naughty by Nature, Shaba Ranks, Soul for Real, and the Notorious B.I.G. Speaking of Biggie, hip-hop was in a really interesting spot. It was in the middle of a second golden age that saw some newer artists starting to take over the charts and create some instant classics. And the first generation that grew up listening to hip-hop was ready to grab the baton. Hip-hop had been around long enough that no one acting in good faith could call it a fad, and no one in the industry who was interested in making money, and everybody who was interested in making money, had to accept that hip-hop was becoming one of the most popular and the most profitable genres in America. And it was spreading. When the Fugees entered the Booga basement in East Orange, New Jersey, they had little reason to believe that they would emerge months later with one of those instant classics. That that album would propel them to the top of the charts and the front row at every award show. That in a year filled to the absolute brim with music that we still talk about and listen to, that their sophomore effort would rise like cream to the top. So what made the score stand out as great in a sea of excellence? And how did it carve out its own lane on a massively busy 
Hip Hop Highway. In this episode of The Opus, we'll hear from some very talented people, some of whom were involved in the making of the Fuji's masterpiece, and some are just talented people who are big, big fans. And one thing that everybody I've spoken to, including me, has in common, none of us can believe that the score is 25 years old. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this is The Opus. Let's go. Soldiers, Left, time I settle the score. the Rum to the Single. In the 1980s, hip hop made a name for itself. But it was still kind of a niche interest. It peaked into the mainstream, but when the mainstream tried to dip its toe into hip hop, let me tell you, it was embarrassing. That's how we ended up with an entire Rodney Dangerfield rap thing and the Super Bowl shuffle. Go Bears. And the 90s changed all of that. I mean, things still had the potential to be very, very cheesy. But by and large, hip-hop was at an artistic high. And for the first time, its artists became superstars in their own right. I mean, we still had people pushing the Bartman and the Urkel on the kids, but massive hits put the genre firmly at the top of the heap, and that's a position from which it's really never looked back. Hell, it's it's built all new heaps. Heaps over in pop music, heaps over in country music, heaps all over the world. But even though hip-hop was moving units and shaking asses, in the early 90s, hip-hop was at a crossroads. The success of gangster rap led to a lot of radio stations pulling or at least trying to pull boycotts against hip-hop's more aggressive artists. And to make matters worse for the industry and for the artists, Gilbert O'Sullivan had a successful court case against Biz Marquis in 1991. The Biz had used a sample of O'Sullivan's Alone Again Naturally without consent, and that threatened to change the game. Producers couldn't use multiple samples all willy-nilly. So the Fugees found themselves creatively with a lot of decisions to make if they wanted to sell more records than they had with their first album. And they'd have to find a way to be authentic to their East Coast but not New York hip-hop inclinations. They'd have to take advantage of the new attention Lauren was getting from Sister Act 2 and they'd have to figure out how to showcase Rycliff and Praz's Haitian heritage, which is an important thing for this group that was formerly known as the Refugees to make known. We're going to explore all of those points as the season goes on. But let's take a look at the score from the front. I remember the mid-90s really well. I was in high school, and when you're young and you're obsessed with something, you soak it up like a sponge, and I kind of missed that, actually. I was obsessed with music, which, haha, my guidance counselor, paid off. 
So when the score came out, I was all about it. And so were the other kids I knew. The score was one of those albums that the jocks had and the nerds had and the hip hop heads had and the metal heads had. It was a unifier. I wanted to talk to somebody that I was in school with to see if I was remembering things correctly. This is Psalm 1. She's a rapper, and she was a rapper even then. She's also an activist, and she lives in Minnesota now. But she's a former classmate of mine who had her world rocked by the score. I went out that day and got the tape from Coconuts. And it's like, this is the era where you had to leave your house, go to the store, buy it with your money. How are you not going to listen to it? Like, people, like... We take streaming for granted now. You just get you just get it on your phone and you may listen to it. You may not. You may listen to the whole thing. You may not. But when you go out and you spend your good earned, hard earned cash, you know, you you're finna immerse yourself in it. Psalm raises a really good point here about streaming and how we take in music now. You can grab a single, you can grab a sample, you can download anything from anywhere, basically and carry it around in your pocket. But in the 90s, we were with, you know, the exception of DJs who will always scoop up singles. We were in an album-based culture. But albums were expensive, especially if you were in high school. But, on the other hand, artists actually got paid, and labels had money to just throw around. That brings us to Chris Schwartz. He, along with Joe Nicolo, were the heads, and are the heads, of Rough House Records. They signed the Fugees and counted Cypress Hill, Tim Dog, and Chris Cross, among a bunch of others, as part of their roster. In the 90s, it became really an album format, right? Uh, it became very conceptual. You started hearing records, you know, like Cypress and the Fugees, and they were approaching albums as an overall thing rather than just stringing a bunch of songs together in a long play configuration. I think it, the audience became more kind of discerning in a way that the, the group became, the audiences became album buyers, right? Yeah. And so I think that was part of it. The budgets changed, you know, we, we kind of, um, the industry broke out of the traditional 60s and 70s, you know, give the rock bands a lot of money, give the black artists like, you know, less dollars for production and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Because these albums, you know, let's face it, we were in the CD age, right? Yep. CD came out in 1983. It was a, um, it was a co-venture between Philips and, and Sony. And a CD in 1983 costs about four to five dollars to manufacture that's why cds were so expensive and album costs about a buck 75 so now we're moving into the late 80s into the early 90s cds are now the ubiquitous go-to configuration cds by the early 90s when you're doing volume are now 68 cents to manufacture that's for the cd the artwork on the cd the jewel case four color separated gatefold everything because mm -hmm. it was all automated albums were still like a dollar 75 to 225 both configurations you're going to spend about four bucks marking promotion yet although the cds went down in manufacturing price 
the wholesale and retail prices kept going up. So, because the major distribution powers figured that, well, we we believe it's the best entertainment value for your money. So there was more money. There was more revenue for for the labels, for the artists and everything. And that sort of uh, paradigm had had also created this whole new age of entrepreneurship with artists and producers and everything. But it made it made the people weren't banging out records in two weeks. Now people were taking it was it was kind of like the way major rock projects get made. Mm-hmm. So I think that had a lot to do with it. You you had also, you know, the profit margins on CDs combined with the growing worldwide popularity of hip hop. It was kind of like the perfect storm. It was the right record at the right time. Ready or not, and people were willing to pay for quality. But in 1995, not a whole lot of people knew that the sophomore album from the Fugees would be the high-quality content that would move hip-hop fans to buy. <laughs> but people sure did buy it. Now that I escape, sleep, walk away. Those who correlate know the world they kick. Jail bars ain't golden gates. Those who fake, they break. When they meet their 400 pound mate, if I could rule the world, everyone would have a gun in the ghetto, of course. When get the up and on their horse. Kick around, drinking moonshine. I pour a sip on the concrete. Put it to cease, but no, don't weep. Why Clef's in the state of sleep? Thinking about the robbery that I did last week. At the top of 1995, the Fugees were between albums. Their first album was called Blunted on Reality, and it did okay. Here's Chris Schwartz again. If you looked at the time in in black music, in the charts and everything, and this was like right after the advent of SoundScan, that your first two weeks were your biggest week. And then after that, you kind of like set your sales patterns happen. And so they never had a big first two weeks. They had a nothing first two weeks. But well over two years after that record was released, it was still selling six to 800 copies a week sound scan. Now, you have to know that is an absolute anomaly. Because 6,800 copies a week sound scan is a record that shipped 50,000 copies in its first two weeks eight months ago. Not a record that shipped nothing two years ago. So a lot of people don't know that. That like that 6,800 copies a week, that means that 6,800 people a week, two years later, were buying this record. Meaning that this group was out gaining an audience and touring and relentlessly just working the the record didn't do that well be that it is as it may it was still to me an important record just for that very fact alone and it was important enough to get their contract re-upped here's joe nicolo so it was time to pick up the fuji's option which me and chris were definitely going to do and i remember it, that the the first record had sold about one hundred nineteen thousand copies and sony was like uh, back then, 119,000 copies. Well, again, with the with the machine and the vi- videos and all that, you had to put into it. They were like, "Well, you're not, you're not gonna, uh, you're gonna pass on picking up the Fuji's option, aren't you?" And we were looked at them like, "Put the glue down, man." I mean, it's like this record. This had just started to happen at the very end of that record. Of course, we're gonna do another record. Yeah. And it's like, well, go ahead. It's your money. You know, you're, you're spending your Cypress Hill crisscross money. So go ahead. 
They spent $135,000 of that Cypress Hill crisscross money. And they spent it on the advance for the score. The Fugees took the bulk of that to the Booga basement. It was the basement of the house where Wyclef and Praz's cousin, Jerry Wanda Duplessis, lived. The Booga basement would become legendary. But in 1995, it was less of a studio space and more of a... It was, just a, it was just a basement with stuff in it. Recording stuff, microphones, boards, speakers. There was a big old thing with, you know, a lot of knobs and buttons. And it was fitting. And it was great because the Fugees were at that part of the Drake song just above the bottom and not really anywhere near here. Here's Jerry Wanda. Everybody was in a, in, a, in a beginning of being a, a better writer or a, a, we get into production. Mm-hmm. So the Booger Basement was a way to start our, our own production company where we producing people, being a producer. So we started, um, I went and got the equipment, Wyclef and I, my brother, Renell, and we did that. So that's, that's what great about that album was like, there was no session. There was no studio time. It was like, we just go and it was right there creating everybody creating, you know, you have people like John Forte, you have, you know, you have other people that was a part of the whole, the whole thing. It, it wasn't just the three Fuji's, but it was all of us team up together to make it. And that was a vibe. It was like a team of band together. So that's what, you know, that helped us later on to say, Oh my God, we could do it. And people wanted that sound too. Believe it or not. Chris Schwartz. You started hearing records, you know, like Cypress and the Fugees, where they're, they're employing skits between the songs. Oh, yeah, we have to talk about the skits. Just for a second. And not just the skits on, on this album, not just the score skits. Skits on hip-hop albums in general. I get it. You're telling a story with an album. It's a narrative. You want to show off your humor. You want to connect the different parts of the album. You want to create character arcs. You want to give the homies a spot to shine. I get it. But for every D's nuts, there are 20 Chinese restaurant skits. Which is to say they can't all be gold. The score is such a great listen from start to finish, though, that you can, if you want, go ahead and skip the skits and not lose any quality. We all laughed at different things 25 years ago. There are episodes of Friends more problematic than anything on this album, but context is important. And it's important to acknowledge how far we've come. We all learn and grow if we're lucky. Word of up, y'all. the town, the beast is loose. Come on. Conflicts with nightsticks, illegal sales districts, handpicked lunatics, keep all attrictions rich, heretics, push narcotics amidst this risks and frisks. Who clicks, throw bricks, but seldom get targets. Private dick sell hits like porno flicks to chicks. The 666 cut wig like Luke and Grit sucks dick. Meanwhile, the government brings Star Wars. So the score was the right record at the right time. And this time, the mid 90s is important in a way that's very specific to hip-hop. A genre that at the time was not yet even 20 years old. 
What that meant was that the Fujis and their contemporaries, who were only in their mid-twenties themselves, were the first generation of black music makers to have grown up not just on R&B and soul and rock and roll, but to have grown up on hip-hop. This generation of MCs and DJs were borrowing from and paying homage to their roots, like every era of musicians do. But for the first time, they had the beats and rhymes of the foundation of hip-hop to pull from, too. And that influence was hugely on display on the score. This album is an amazing curation of samples and covers that make this album have not just the kind of staying power that makes it worth talking about 25 years later, but a, a lingering power that sustained this February release all the way through until the next February at the Grammy Awards. And the best rap album is... The Fugees. Um, um, we're gonna make this real quick. We like to big up East Coast and West Coast, one love. Um, at this moment, let's not forget the refugees in Zaire going through this bad situation right now. Um, nor the refugees in Haiti. Um, we want to thank Sony, the record company, for making Everyone this I've spoken Mom, to Pop, about the score, whether they had hands in the making of it or not, is just a big champion of this record. And everyone has their favorite parts of it. Psalm 1, who's a lyricist. Uh, I be Nina Simone defecating on your microphone. Defecate? Are you serious? <laughs> and, and, and I remember uh, what Diamond D... He said precision and then said, I leave lyrical incisions. And then, of course, the ubiquitous bing. Like, that's what you knew. That's what you would. Wyclef came in with the bing in the album. That's what you knew you, you had said something. And she agrees with me about a standout bar on Zealots. Uh, this lyric in Zealots, and even after all my logic and my theory, I add a mother <laughs> so you hear me, is just Whoa! like. Whoa! Roll like, that back. Roll it back. Because <laughs> it was it, logic theory. Ah, oh, come on, ignorance. Because it's just like for me, I grew up. I grew up in like my formative years. Were going. I was going to like advanced placement classes and like smart schools, but I lived in the hood. So that lyric was just like, okay, like you can be a smart person and rap because you know there's so many smart people that rap so many people who are like intelligent or whatever of course but that's not what they feed us that's not what they tell us yeah you know a lot of times it's like <clears throat> is this person just gangster or are they actually like intelligent you know and, it, yeah. and I think as a kid hearing these raps and hearing these rappers let me know that like my nerdy ass could be cool through this art form and Jerry Wanda just loved it all I play every song because every song touched me as a writer, composer. Every song, it's not just the hit, the people call the hit, hit, hit. Uh, whenever I listen to each song, it just brings memories to me. Where were we? What moment where was that? Like if I listen to Cowboys, you know, what that means, how many mics, what that means, you know, yeah. uh, the score, what that means. And, you know, even the skits, I remember that, you know, we have Rise Bowaka, which is a part of the album. So, you know, Rise Bowaka is, 
is the mayor of Newark, New Jersey. Yeah. And, you know, so you got, you got Roz, you got, you know, all, all of them came to the basement to record. And I did, every song in that album, if you ask me for what's my favorite, I don't have a favorite. They all bring memory. They're all special to me. They're my babies. It's like, tell me which kid I like better now. They're all my babies. That's called album. I could listen to it over and over. And every piece of it, I remember what happened. And it was a moment. We're going to hear a lot more from Jerry and Chris and Joe and everyone else in the next episodes of The Opus. Episode two takes us down to the Booga basement where lightning was captured in a bottle. And we find out that where you make an album can influence the art itself. This season won't leave us subterranean, though. We'll look at the scores rise from the literal underground to Haiti, to New Jersey, to the top of the charts, to multi-platinum status. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, this has been The Opus. I'm Jill Hopkins. I'll see you next time. Ooh la la la, it's the way that we rock when we doing our thing. Ooh la la la, it's the natural lot at the refugee's brain. Ooh la 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 la. So we, hey. Shalom, I know how to be fun. Dig it. Stay high off the Fuji line bus when we rush through. You must new rock cuss crew. Got G's like the refuse, so F who ever wanna test? Bring me stress west coast back to east. Grab my toast when I reach truly curving, swerving. Lifestyle is urban, sipping bourbon, surviving. We really keep the word when a boy wants to be tested. Consequence Podcast Network. I've never been this nervous in my life. Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on? A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast.